Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Film Daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 30th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about The Mandalorian Episode 8, Redemption. This is the final episode of Season 1 of The Mandalorian. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Sorata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And joining us is Star Wars insider writer, full of Sith podcaster, Brian Young. Howdy do. And uh, if you're wondering, no, you did not travel into the future. We are recording this a little early and putting it up on the podcast feed so you have something to enjoy over the weekend because we took some days off this week. Uh, But this will function uh, as Monday's episode. But uh, let's talk about this, guys. Uh, So episode eight of The Mandalorian. This is the first episode of or this is the. Star Wars directorial debut of Taika Waititi, uh, which, boy, is it incredible. Like, I feel like this might be my favorite episode of the season. I know I said that, like, probably three times over the course of the season. I've changed my mind. (laughs) But uh, it's Star Wars. you got to allow me to change my mind. And, uh, you know, this was just, like, so thrilling, so funny. Uh, Brad, you just got done watching this. What did you think? Yeah, this was a fantastic episode, and in many ways, this this episode felt like what I 
assumed that most of the series would be like. Well, we kind of talked about this in the last uh, podcast for the previous episode and how we finally got some characters together that we'd wanted to see uh, all in one group finally after, you know, an entire season. And this time it, it even more so uh, took that route. And yeah, having all this whole team together uh, was really great. Um, there's some little, I don't know, kind of nitpicky things that I have that I feel like the show doesn't quite earn and that kind of bugged me. Um, Br- bring those up when we get to them. Yeah, no, I will. Um, and but, but yeah, otherwise, this was a very satisfying finale and definitely paves the way for uh, a very interesting second season. Brian, what did you think? You know, I was uh, I was really on board with the episode. And then when we got to the ending, I just didn't even realize I was crying. Um, the ending kind of hit that that so hard that I didn't realize that uh, it was going to affect me the way it did. I really enjoyed it. I think uh, Waititi got away with stuff that only Waititi could. <laughs> yeah, uh, fair enough. And, and uh, well, I mean, I think if you had any other of the episodic directors that have been working on the show try to pull off this script, I just don't think it would have worked. Um, and Or maybe it wasn't the script. Maybe it was just, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically the the Jason Sudeikis and, and Adam Pally scene and uh, Phil Shostak over at Lucasfilm had said that like most of that scene was improv though. Uh, and that they'd had all kinds of outtakes that were even funnier, but that they couldn't use cause it was star Wars. And uh, so maybe it wasn't just the script that anybody else could have messed up. Maybe it was like Taika Waititi and that special relationship with other comedians just made it special in that yeah. way. Maybe it was in the DNA because he was involved. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I said on Twitter that, uh, you, you know, when you get to the climactic end of a movie and it's totally disappointing and unexciting, this was the complete opposite of that for me. I was, like, so worried that they were not going to be able to, you know, just land this. And it lands it so well. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, okay. Uh, this is a 45-minute episode. It's one of the longer episodes of the season, which I appreciate. And uh, this uh, also was a, an episode that was more on, like, the A storyline. I, actually, I don't even think there was a B storyline of this episode, was there? Uh, so I, I would like to see more of this in season two. Uh, but, uh, okay, let's let's talk about this. So last week, Brian, you weren't here. Uh, we discussed it without you. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. It's been a hectic couple of weeks, what with... Uh... <laughs> That other that other big Star Wars thing coming out. Oh yeah, wait. There's another big. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so last week's episode ended with a shot of Baby Yoda being snatched up by a scout trooper, and we pan over to show Quill laying in the dirt, seemingly dead. Uh, what a cliffhanger! What a, what a great cliffhanger uh, for this episode. So this week begins with an awesome sequence uh, focusing on two scout troopers. This is something so unexpected. Like I was like, oh, we're gonna you know st- start on the storyline of you know Mando and crew being held up in that cantina. No, no, we start on the the scout troopers that are escorting Baby Yoda, and uh, they they're you know they keep on hitting Baby Yoda. Uh, this is so funny. It feels to me like a call. Like I'm not even sure if Taika Waititi has seen troops. Have you seen troops, Brad? No, I haven't seen troops. It's it's a fan for those people that don't know. There's this fan film out there that was created. When was this? Like in the 90s, maybe? It was in the 90s, and it was written by Kevin Rubio, who went on to to write some episodes of Star Wars: The Clone Wars. 
Yeah, and it was so funny. It took place uh, basically telling you what what the lives of stormtroopers were. It's like uh, a it's a it's a Star Wars version of cops. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. It was a cops parody. It's been so long that I forgot it was even a parody of cops. Uh, but it was... it's been so long I forgot what cops was. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I, I I know about like what I know about troops is that it's a parody of cops yeah. and stormtroopers. You know that's gonna make it hard on that joke and uh, you know them singing the song in the the new Bad Boys movie for you, Brian. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, th- the scene is like so funny. Like, like you said, it, it's only a scene that could it could be done by Taika. I, I it almost makes me wish that we could get a like troops movie from Taika. Like I feel like See, that would be amazing. Not, not not even just a troops movie, but like honestly, this kind of scene is exactly the kind of thing that I I've wished that we could see in the Star Wars universe. Like I've, I've I love comedy. Uh, you know, regular listeners of Slash from Daily know that. And I've always wanted to see something comedic done in the world of Star Wars, and it's always felt like it's somewhat impossible because so much of Star Wars is the is the more serious sci-fi action adventure. Even though there are funny moments throughout Star Wars, they've never really gone full on comedy. And there was there was supposed to be another series that um, was in, in the works, an animated series that Seth Green was working on. Uh, what was what was that called? That was Star Wars Detours. Detours. And, yeah, and they Detours, did yeah. they did an entire season of that. Yeah, before it got shut down once Lucasfilm got picked up by Disney. Yeah. By the way, he um, was at my screening of Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I was there at the first screening at the Chinese Theater, and he was he was one of the people there. Um, and he was also at the premiere. Like, he – actually, if you go to my video blog from the premiere, he is photobombing us as we are giving a reaction coming out of the premiere a bunch of times. So he is a I, hardcore Star Wars fan. But yeah, so but yeah, to get back to what I was saying is I've always wanted to see something like this in Star Wars and it it was so wonderful to me to see this play out like this and I didn't even realize uh, that it was uh, Sudeikis and uh, Adam Pally until I looked it up immediately afterwards. I was like, I need to know who it was. Okay. I couldn't recognize their voices. Um, but yeah, that scene, it's so funny <laughs> and like, yeah, uh, and as funny as it is, like it even makes you like cringe because they're punching baby yoda in the head <laughs> yeah i i winced a couple times i you know i know jason sudeikis but who is adam pally pally i don't know i yeah, don't know adam pally adam pally uh he um is probably best known for starring in the unfortunately shorter lived abc series happy endings uh it lasted for three seasons uh it is a very very funny show he is hilarious on it he's also in um, Iron Man uh, three. He's the uh, the the guy who's in the news van that helps Tony. He's like a real big Tony Stark fanboy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's Adam Pally. I I really loved the gag about them shooting. I really like how <laughs> the Mandalorians leaned into the fact that stormtroopers are terrible or their masks are terrible. Um, this is something that Dave Filoni kind of played up in Rebels as well. Like, there's a moment where. Captain Rex, who spent his life as a, a deadly clone, uh, gets into stormtrooper armor and can't hit anything as soon as he puts the mask on and ends up taking it off and throwing it at stormtroopers in order to actually start hitting stuff. Well, here's um, the question. Is it the heavy stormtrooper armor that makes it hard to like move and aim, or is it those blasters? I think it's just like the cheap, like they got the cheapest visors they could, so they can't even see straight. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny because I was thinking last week when we came to the opening of this town and there's those two uh, scout troopers on speeder bikes guarding it. I was like, oh, that's a lot of money to spend for just like a small scene of like two people guarding this thing. But they're, you know, obviously they're making use of these two speeder bikes that they built. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, okay. So one of the troopers keeps on hitting Baby Yoda. The other keeps on coming up with reasons to see what's inside the bag. Um, I, I know, like, okay. So IG Eleven then shows up and he takes out the two troopers in a like spectacular fashion. Uh, and by by the way. Who knew that Taika Waititi was such a great action director? I know, obviously, Thor Ragnarok showed off he had some chops. But, like, I was just really impressed by this whole episode as a whole. Like, you know, you don't... You know, I don't want to discredit anybody. But, obviously, when you sign up for a Marvel movie, you get the Marvel Viz development team with their animatics and all that on board. Do you know what I mean? Like, that makes a... I'm not going to say it makes a bad director look better but it, it does definitely add some polish to this uh here i uh, you know i don't know i, I just love the, the these sequences especially with ig11 uh and the spinny action that he does I, th- I i think that could be as much as the sort of boot camp that favreau who would be still be coming out of the marvel school and feloni uh like it seemed like the, those two were presents a presence on the set the whole time. And so that if there were any of those, you know, Hey, I'm in over my head moments, which I doubt like after, after seeing just the way scenes that feel action packed, that don't actually have action in them in Jojo rabbit. Uh, I, I don't have any doubt that Waititi would have all these chops. Yeah. I I don't know why I, I was, in any way of doubting him because he's impressed me at every step of the way. And I've been, you know, a fan of his since, you know, seeing Eagle vs. Shark, how many decades ago, you know, 15 years ago or something. Um, I did want to mention here because we're on baby Yoda for a second that Bob Iger had a quote this past week and he did admit that baby Yoda does have a name. He knows what it is. It is not revealed in this episode. Uh, so that's interesting. And he also said that he was reprimanded by uh, the showrunners of the show for calling him baby Yoda. So uh, Brian, I guess you were right all along. I mean, I've been saying it, but it's fine. Like I, I think, Everybody laughs at me because I still try to call him like the asset or the child. But uh, I think Baby Yoda calling calling him Baby Yoda is going to confuse more people in the long run. It is, but it's hard. It's hard to Google the asset is the problem. It is. No, I I understand it. It, Like from an SEO perspective, that's why if you'll notice in my review of this episode for Slash Film, (laughs) I referred to him as the so-called Baby Yoda in quotes. (laughs) Fair enough. Just for you. Fair, fair enough. Uh, okay, so chapter eight, the title was revealed, Redemption. I don't think there's any, like, uh, uh, secret uh, layers here. Is there? Is there something I'm missing? Uh, to the title? No, I don't no, think so. No, okay. Uh, okay, so Mando, Karga, and Dune are all uh, holed up in this cantina, and there's an army of stormtroopers setting up an e-web heavy repeating blaster outside, which is a weapon I've used many times in Star Wars Imperial Assault board game. Um, so it's cool to see it again on screen here. Uh, you know, this is something that we didn't get a chance to talk about last week, uh, but I wanted to ask you guys, now that we're seeing like this entire, like, you know, these are like people from the 501st, like there's a huge army of stormtroopers here. Uh, I, I was led to believe, you know, this takes place years after the fall of the Empire, and, you know, even Warner Herzog's character had, like, a few goons and dirty, you know, buckets and stuff like that. Like, uh, here, there's, like, a a huge army of stormtroopers, and they all look nice, and they, like, look like they've, you know, not gone through the shit. Like, wh- where have they been hiding? 
Moth Gideon just doesn't accept that level of filth. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, okay, Mando uh, finds a sewer vent and they have a plan to escape. Gideon addresses them from outside using their names. And this is the first time on camera that we hear that the Mandalorian's name, which is Din Darjin. And, uh, Jaren. Jaren. Din Jaren, sorry. I didn't have time to put uh, subtitles on. Did we find out how this is spelled finally? Yes, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> uh, uh, wait, I have it right here. Uh I know it's D-I-N. D-I-N-D-J-A-R-I-N. Yeah. So he's like a genie. So this is something that Pedro Pascal let slip during the press for the first episode, but it was only revealed here. No one was supposed to know his name except for maybe this uh, big moth from the the uh, the, the Imperial Army. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, the bigger thing here is he knew who... Cardoon is, and it's revealed that she is from Alderaan, which I think is interesting because that probably explains her hate for the Empire. Yeah, she's got that thing for the Empire that he's got for droids, and for the same reason, essentially, right? Like, the Separatist army ravaged his homeworld, and that was all droids. The Empire destroyed hers. And it, it makes that moment in the previous episode so much better when, when she's like, he's an Imperial. She's like, okay, I'm in. Like, like there's not even a hesitation yeah, and I know oh, – what were you going to say, Brad? Oh, I was just going to say we also learned her full name is Cara Cynthia. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Interesting. Yeah, which, uh, is, which is super cool. Yeah. And uh, I feel like Esposito, for, for years since Breaking Bad, since playing Gus Fring, has been trying to – he's been cast as a lot of, like, these villains, and he never really seems that badass. He doesn't seem as badass as he was when he was Gus Fring, but here – I'm not sure if it's the Star Wars outfit. I'm not sure that it's like his confidence, but I feel like this is his most badass role since, uh, you know, stepping out of that uh, fast food joint and Breaking Bad. I yeah, really. I mean... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You got it. You got it, Brian. Well, I really love how if you notice, he only fires one single shot in this entire battle. All hell is breaking loose around him. And he's so cool and confident. He aims very carefully in the middle of this firefight shoots one blaster bolt and almost kills the Mandalorian with it just because well, he's I, shooting smarter than everybody else. Two shots. Cause he shoots him in the head first and then he shoots oh, right, right, the, right. Yeah, the, the gun thing. But yeah, th- that on top of the fact that he, he's got that, you know, thing down where he speaks very purposefully and methodically and just in a single tone and matter and in a, a way that it's just like, this is how it is. And like, he, he knows like he's going to be victorious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That that proclamation that like no you can't trust me is <laughs> yeah. so perfect for a character that cocky and arrogant like no you can't the only thing I care about is my self interest yeah the only you know he's so smart but the only thing is he gives them till nightfall to decide if they want to surrender and I'm guessing this is because this is such a bad plan on his end because he's a bad guy wearing cape right well I think it's because he doesn't know where the asset is yeah yeah okay so and- uh. So wait, he, but doesn't he know where? Like, isn't the asset with the two scout troopers? Am I wrong? Well, yeah, he, but he thinks it is, but he but he doesn't have it in his possession yet. So he's waiting until he does before he gets rid of the the maybe the peop, only people who would be able to get it back. 
Okay. And they reported in and they're like, we're not going to bug the guy. He just murdered a whole bunch of us. Like, so that was like his fear working against him, against the local garrisons as well as part you know, that, that jokey conversation between the two of them had a broader purpose in establishing the groundwork of why he was going to give him that chance because he didn't know they had possession of the baby. Yeah. Uh, Carr says that because of her rebel history, the Empire might subject her to interrogation by a mind flare. Uh, meanwhile, Grief doesn't believe that those things are real. What is is there any precedent for this in Star Wars canon? I'm not even sure. Like mind flare, I think of like uh, Dungeon Dragons or Stranger Things. I think I think uh, Dungeons and Dragons is more more what they like it's more of a reference to dungeons and dragons than anything yeah i think the closest thing that we have to something like that in star wars might be more gullet yeah um okay so mando believes that his moff gideon an infamous imperial who he was thought to be killed off for his war crimes but he's you know alive and well here and we get to see a flashback to mando's childhood uh again the same scene that we've seen play out i think two times before maybe three times where his parents are stashing him in an underground bunker while they're being their city is being attacked by super battle droids uh which by the way i i haven't thought about this earlier but maybe this is because i just saw uh star wars the rise of skywalker you know five times in the last week or but uh there seems to be a star wars trope of parents leaving their kids uh, in either underground bunkers or desert planets or whatever uh like it seems to have happened like this is like the third time at least right they need to do to do a disney plus show about child protective services in a galaxy far far away <laughs> yeah <laughs> So uh, many people had been expected that someone big would come and save him, like a big name. Like it could be Obi-Wan and this could tie into, you know, the Obi-Wan TV show or it could be Boba Fett, which you have, uh, you know, explained why that is not possible in previous episodes. But, you know, people still believe that that was possible. Um, but we maybe do... it is. I don't know. I don't know. It, Any... it... What? Oh, no, not, not that he was possible there. I thought we were talking about the end of season five. Oh, or season five. five. Oh episode no, no. Five. I was just saying that the, there would there would be a, a Boba Fett would come and save the day in that moment, and that obviously can't happen because of the yeah. timeline. Um, well, what's what's interesting about all of those? I'm not sure if you noticed the the Mandos that saved him. Their shoulders insignias uh, are all the Shriekhawk insignia that is used by Clan Vizsla and was adopted by Death Watch during the Clone Wars. And so, so Vizsla this... is not the first time we've heard you use that name on this podcast. No, it's not. So, um, John Favreau's uh, character that he that he uh, cameoed as in, I think, was it the second episode? Um, yeah, he was a Vizsla, and John Favreau also played pre Vizsla on Clone Wars, and he was the first person with the dark saber that we'd seen, and uh, the Vizsla clan ended up uniting again, uh, uniting against the Empire with Bo-Katan after Sabine Wren sort of united all the clans uh, just before the Battle of Yavin uh, of Mandalore. But uh, Death Watch was this offshoot splinter group because the Mandalorian government was a pacifist government, and this sort of terrorist organization led by Pre Vizsla wanted to bring Mandalore back to the glory of its warrior past. And they sort of just did all kinds of horrible, nasty things and ended up taking over the planet uh, with the help of Maul. 
Um, unfortunately, one of the things that happened is, is they were actually aligned with the separatists for a long time, which places the Mando's time as a kid very late in the war if Death Watch and Clan Vizsla are fighting against hmm. the separatists because they were it wasn't until they were allied with Maul uh, and then later um, the Empire sort of broke that up after the Siege of Mandalore, which is a, a storyline that we're getting in the new episodes of the Clone Wars in uh, 2020. Well, very interesting. So. It's interesting that these two shows are going to possibly inform each other because we've, we've heard a lot about, you know, what happened to the Mandalorians and that we're going to kind of see that in this upcoming series season of this animated series, right? Um, well, no. So the, I think when Moff Gideon talks about the siege of Mandalore, when he was talking in his monologues, I think what he meant was the purge as far as how they've been referring to it on the Mandalorian as a show. Uh I think we've been referring to the siege of Mandalore at the end of clone wars as something different than he was referring to. Um, But he referred to it also as the night of a thousand tears, which a sounds really rad, (laughs) but B I don't think has anything to do with this. So the, the story we're getting in the clone wars is the liberation of Mandalore from Maul's clutches at the end of the Clone Wars um, as close to Order 66 as the show has ever gotten. The purge has to happen after Rebels occurs because the Darksaber is in the possession of Bo-Katan, who is uh, the Mandalore, the leader of Mandalore, uh, uniting all of those clans uh, you know, almost you know, within ten years of the show happening. Yeah, yeah we'll t- we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, so we see this faction of Mandalorians uh, with jetpacks. They look awesome. They look badass. Um, and one of them takes Mando into his arms and flies into the sky. It reminds me of Superman almost, like saving a little kid. And uh, he says that he's not sure if Moff Gideon or that he is sure that it's Moff Gideon because he's the only one that would know his name. Uh, Mando tried contacting Quill again. And this is when he gets a a signal back from IG-11 instead who informs him that Quill is dead. And he tells him that his base function is now to nurse and protect. Uh, And he has baby Yoda in his like, what would you call that? Baby Bjorn or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which, by the way, how soon before we get T-shirts that that show IG Eleven and say "Nurse and Protect" on it? Because I feel like that's that's like the next wave of merchandise. Or like those those T-shirts like they used to sell for the Hangover with the baby and the Bjorn. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Just like a baby Bjorn of Yoda in a T-shirt, that would be that would sell like yeah. gangbusters. <laughs> Anything with baby Yoda. It's funny how quickly they've been able to crank this stuff out I, I know they haven't gotten brad's been you know waiting for the toys and stuff like that they haven't been able you know that takes a longer uh period of time to actually get done but like in disneyland today they actually released a whole bunch of like t-shirts and sweat like a spirit jersey and like th- that seems like it took them like what a month or something like that i don't know uh because it seems like they weren't working on it until the first episode aired and they were like oh shit we got to produce some some merchandise well, the thing that's even even more annoying too on the on the same toy subject too, aside from just specifically uh, Baby Yoda, is they haven't released like more of the initial Mandalorian figures that were in stock. Like all of the Mandalorian figures, uh, including the more rare Target exclusive carbonized version, have been out of stock since Triple Force Friday. 
that sucks. I, 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 Hasbro, I Hasbro is just the worst as far as keeping their toys in stock, like period. Like they always overproduce the figures no one wants and then blames people for like, oh, no one's buying toys. And it's like, I already have a Constable Zuvio. Yeah. Like, I don't need nine more. <laughs> but to be fair, when they probably produced that, they probably didn't even know what his role was in the movie. Like, I went to a Target uh, the, over the weekend, and the entire shelf was decimated. Like, there was – I don't think there was anything. I, the only toy that they had was two figures of DJ from The Last Jedi that nobody wants because who wants DJ? But I, uh, it, I have a DJ. <laughs> I like DJ. I don't know how how plentiful your store shelves are usually, Peter, but I frequently check the toy aisle whenever I'm in a Target or a Walmart, and they've never been really all that plentifully stocked of Star Wars figures, especially when it comes to Black Series figures. And, yeah, I, I've yet to see a Mandalorian figure in the wild in a store, because if I would have, I would have bought it. <laughs> See, the I, thing that sucks is before I saw Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, I saw in my Target a C-3PO with uh, Babu Frick, and I didn't buy it because I was like, you know, I want to see the movie and see if yeah, same here. good. I and then, now I went back, and it's all gone. All gone. Yeah. So what were you saying, just wanted Everybody just needed that Babu Frick. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so uh, IG-11 takes uh, the speeder into town and in spectacular fashion – takes out most of the stormtroopers uh he's like spinning just shooting it, it's uh baby yoda's laughing as he watches on uh what did you guys think of this action sequence i i thought it was incredible yeah it's so much it's so much fun i, I will say the one the, and this is this isn't one of the nitpicks i was talking about before but this is a very tiny thing and they've only done this once before thankfully much to my surprise is they used one of them the more cliche i guess you would say uh stock baby laughing sounds for baby yoda and I hate when I hear it coming out of Baby Yoda because it sounds more human, I guess, than some of the other ones. Like, obviously, Baby Koo sounds all sound somewhat similar, but there there are some very specific baby sounds that frequently get reused in movies and TV shows. And I heard one of them in this episode, and it annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> I did not notice that, Brad, but I, I, I believe you because, I, like, you know uh... – Skywalker sound does that all the time where they just use the same like sound samples. Yeah. And it's like, it's like you always hear the same dolphin sound whenever there's a dolphin in a movie. Yeah. But you know, some of that is like an inside joke, you know, it's like the Willem scream. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, Okay. So uh, Mando takes uh, the E-Web off its sticks and starts taking out a bunch of the bucket heads and uh, the death troopers uh, infiltrate the cantina, but Kara is holding her own and, uh, Gideon takes out the Transformer in front of Mando. This is the moment that you were talking about earlier, Brian, where he uses two shots and was able to basically take out Mando. Mando is very injured here. Uh, The group retreats to the cantina, and Gideon says that uh, basically orders someone to burn them out. And IG-11 opens up the the sewer grate, and while he's doing that, uh, Dune discovers that Mando is bleeding. And wants to take off his helmet, and he still refuses. Mando tells Dune that to let him die a warrior's death. Seriously? Guys, like, he's dying. And he's unwilling to take off his helmet to, like, save his life? This is the way. Yeah. Fine, fine. Did, did, <laughs> did any of you guys think that, like, immediately when we saw the, injur- the injury that we were just like, oh, Yoda's gonna, baby Yoda's gonna heal him? Yes, I, I figured that's what would happen, but I guess it's too easy. Well, but he um, he needed to save his strength for, like, exploding the firebug. Yeah. 
Yeah. I feel like they should have had the firebug thing happen before we revealed that he was injured. Because then when you have Yoda deflect the fire onto that, uh, what do you call that trooper with the flamethrower? It's uh, just a flame trooper. Flame trooper. I know that yeah. like all my best buys have like the flame that that helmet on sale in the black series, like the collectible series, and I'm like, isn't this in a video game or something? Like, have they appeared on screen before? Uh, yeah, flame troopers. Uh, in fact, I fought far too many of them in Fallen Order. Oh, fo- recently. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, anyways, I I think they should have had that scene happen before the reveal of the of the injury because then if you have Baby Yoda, you know passed out then you're like oh oh shit what's gonna happen here but before like you know when it when you, you reveal it you're like oh he's just gonna get healed um but okay um the i guess it's an incinerator trooper is what i had in my notes does that sound I right i mean that's yeah like i think they're like call it whatever you want man i don't know no? I, I know that's the name on that hasbro of that that helmet thing that they sell at best buy that i'm waiting for it to, because there's so many of them because I think people just want a normal stormtrooper helmet so I'm waiting for them to like just discount them before I buy one of them but we'll see uh okay uh the, the uh IG11 stays behind with Mando he asks him to kill him and IG says he can't he's a nurse droid uh he asks him to remove his helmet so he can save him and Mando says that he will kill IG if he does that and I, IG argues with him basically saying that he's not a living thing so that makes it okay for him to see his face. And this is the moment in the series that we've been waiting for where Mando takes off his helmet and we see that he looks like Pedro Pascal. So uh, is it anticlimactic in any way? I think it would be uh, weird if it w- didn't look like Pedro Pascal. <laughs> I don't know. I was expecting scars or something. I don't, know. I, was just, I don't know what I was expecting, but I guess it was just it's just what it was. I was a little disappointed that he didn't have perfectly quaffed hair like Adam Driver in The Force Awakens after he takes off his helmet. Hey, <laughs> that that is a weird criticism, Brad. Weird criticism. <laughs> okay. Um, I, you know, the, the interesting thing here is, I don't think we talked about this, but a couple weeks back when Bryce Dallas Howard did her episode, she did some interviews where she talked about when she did the direction of her episode that she did not actually get to direct pedro pascal at all he was she was just directing like stunt doubles or like john wayne's grandson yeah so uh this makes me wonder because i I think i brought this up in the first episode when we were talking about it do you think pedro pascal this is the only scene he was on set for no they because they they actually talked about that afterwards too i don't know if it was bryce dallas howard or somebody else that traditionally um Pedro Pascal was on set most of the time for for those kinds of things, but that for that particular episode, there was some other thing he had going on. I don't remember if it was like Wonder Woman 1984 reshoots or what, but there was there was something that kept him busy during that episode, so he wasn't as available as he usually is. Fair enough. Yeah. Although I think that would be genius because Star Wars is like the only Star Wars and maybe some Marvel stuff are the only franchises you could really do that with, where you could cast like an A list. Hollywood talent and not have them even show up on set and just, you know, come in at the end of the season and do a voiceover. You mean like Nick Nolte? Yes, like Nick Nolte. Exactly. I think that's how we got in the subject uh, originally in the first episode. Anyways, uh, so 
IG-11 somehow has that uh, Bacta stuff, which we've seen in the Star Wars movies, and he applies some of it to Mando's head, and uh, that should heal the injury, and it, it he takes him to the others, and they navigate the sewers looking for the Mandalorian hideout, but they find a pile of Mandalorian gear instead. Uh, have they all died, Brian? Uh, most of them. Uh, you know, the armorer makes it pretty clear that, that everyone that she knew about is dead, but she hopes a few others escaped. Yeah, I think she said so, some might have escaped. Uh, they. This is really surprising to me because I really expect the way, the way that they were going to escape was going to be with the help of his Mandalorian clan. And the fact that they're mostly dead is shocking. It's really shocking. Like they introduce oh, so many things in the show and then they kill them off like an episode later. Just to correct myself too, uh, it wasn't Wonder Woman 1984 reshoots. He was starring in Broadway in a production of King Lear. Ah. Okay. So uh, the Mandalorian armorer, I think she's credited as, uh, arrives and explains that some have escaped off, but most are dead, and, and she won't leave this place until she has salvaged what remains. Uh, he shows her Baby Yoda, and Mando explains uh, that uh, you know her Baby Yoda's powers, and she says that she has heard stories of the Mandalorians fighting against Jedi with great powers. Brian, I know you have a little bit of an issue here. I'm just still trying to wrap my head around this. Like the entire Mandalorian culture is based around fighting the Jedi, right? Like their or their history, right? Like every weapon, every piece of Beskar, every uh, trick in their 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 toolbox for fighting was developed in their history to specifically counter the the powers of the Jedi, whether that was lightsabers or whether that was them being able to move things in the force or whatever. And these stories were being told by people uh, and to people that were in relation to the Jedi within the last eight years of the show. Right. Like, so it's not like it's some distant history and the Mandalorian himself shouldn't be surprised about this. Like, wait, 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 wait a second. Let, let me get the timeline here properly, because this takes place, what, like five to seven years after Return of the Jedi? No. So, well, Favreau said initially seven years after the Battle of Yavin. And he said as much as five years after the Battle of Endor. So I okay. think we're looking between three and and seven years after. I don't think they're going to say specifically when the time is until there's a story reason for them to pinpoint it. Yeah. And that's just how the story group is doing things now to make sure that they don't screw anything up later by saying this happens then and then have something contradicted. So I think it's squishy in that three to seven years. So, so aside from like... Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, when is the last time that the Mandalorians, Mandalorians on a big scale, like not just like a book, have come into contact with the Jedi? Ezra Bridger and Kanan Jarrus all through Rebels, right before the Battle of Yavin. <sighs> okay, that's that's unfortunate. And that... they, they, they were like instrumental in, like, it's Ezra that goes to Mandalore to get their help to defeat Thrawn at the Battle of Adalon. And that's when they start joining the Rebellion, and that's when they get involved in the conflict against the Empire. It's hmm. because of the direct intervention of Ezra and Kanan. And Kanan trains Sabine how to fight against the lightsaber and how to use the darksaber. 
and the dark saber is something that like the dark saber itself is part of Mandalorian history is something that was revered because it was from the first Mandalorian who'd been chosen and taken to become a Jedi. And it was built by him and stolen by the Mandalorians after his death to take back as this revered prize of power to represent the leadership of their of their world. Maybe it's a bad game of telephone where that story has changed over the years, right? But again, like this was the story they were saying like know, seven years prior. It's it's I'm sure there's an explanation for it. I'm also sure there's got to be an explanation for the helmet thing and the creed and that they're going to come up with some reason why this particular sect of Mandalorians has stuck to that creed rather than what everybody else was doing, where it's like, you know, it's really inconvenient <laughs> to have my bucket on all the time. Yeah. OK, well, she says that uh, Baby Yoda is a foundling. And he must reunite him with his own kind, uh, which I'm assuming that's going to be what season two is going to be about, I guess. Like searching for uh, the assets home or Baby Yetta's home, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that does lead into my favorite quote of this episode. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver it to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way, she says. <laughs> I think I, I think that is just great. Okay, anyways, um, I... And I feel like Taika Waititi, uh, even though he sometimes goes broad with his comedy, like, and I know I've had problems in the past. I have problems with some of the comedy in The Last Jedi. I have some co- problems with even some of the comedy in episode one of the series that was directed by Dave Filoni. I feel like all the comedy in this really fits in so well to me. I don't know. I'm not sure why or, you know, what what the secret formula is, but, like, it really works for me. Um I mean, comedy's subjective, yeah. And and I it, all the comedy in Last Jedi really works for me, so I couldn't even begin to understand why some of this would, but that wouldn't. Well, I'm not with, saying the comedy you. in Last Jedi isn't funny. I'm saying the comedy in Last Jedi feels somehow not st- seems seems it feels more contemporary than feels star like the timeless Star Wars comedy. Does that make sense? Well, I. Th- I think part of that has to do with the fact that Star Wars is shifting generations over the course of the trilogies. So the the comedy and stuff in the in the prequels is silent film era and like uh, guys like you know uh, Abbott and Costello sort of routines with the droids. In the classic trilogy, it's very seventies based. Same with all the acting style. Um, you know the, the acting style in the prequels is very like mid mid uh, mid Atlantic accent kind of faux Shakespearean and then with the sequel trilogy they've advanced the acting again to something more contemporary that we're used to um, just as a shift in generations inside the world I think it's actually pretty smart world building Brian once again proves that he can argue argue his way out of a trash compactor so uh, okay Uh, she she says uh, that Mando has earned his signet. How has he earned his signet? She she puts it on the shoulder, and what is that? That's a mudhorn. Oh, that is a mudhorn. I I could not yeah. even tell what the what what it was. So, so she she's like, okay, this is the being that saved you. This is the baby that's caused all this problem. Yeah, you've earned this. Uh, it didn't matter that it wasn't a clean kill. Like the two of you, and that's why she says you're a clan of two. And she makes them their own clan and puts the mud horn on them as though she's just sort of branding him with like, okay, this kid's your problem. Go to it. The mud horn clan of two. See, this all makes me disappointed that 
we can't involve the Mandalorian in Galaxy's Edge because I would like to be part of a clan. I'd like to go to like, you know, a secret underground lair of Mandalorian and get like ignited into my clan. It's never going to happen, though. Okay, Why? Uh, I mean, they could they could totally open an, um, a Mandalorian covert if they wanted yeah. to down the line if Mandalorian got that. There's, I mean, there's just empty rooms there that they built knowing they would expand stuff. Why not make one of them a Mandalorian covert? Yeah, I'd, I'd be down. Okay, so anyways, she gives Mandalorian a jetpack, and, you know, that's obviously a callback to got to get me one of those or whatever he said in that second episode. Uh, they escape, and the troopers come, and the armorer takes them out, in such a badass way with just using her tools alone. Again, you know, I, I'm just so impressed by the action from Taika here. Um, okay, so they get on a lava runner. This is actually a very interesting concept, I think. Uh, probably in the conceptual phase, I feel like it's better than the execution. It, it's a boat that travels downstream of a, a stream of lava. It's such a cool idea. Uh, Cardoon uses her gun to remove the like the the boat from the dock or whatever it is and that gives her character some purpose i guess uh they get in and uh they're trying to make it go and the, the r2 looking astromech droid reveals that he has arms and legs and uh starts rowing the boat like he's like on a gondola in venice is this r2 unit going to give you guys nightmares no i thought it was charming that was charming. I don't know. I want an action figure. I mean, if they do have an action figure, I'll buy one for my droid shelf. But uh, Brad, what do you think of of R two units with arms and legs? Uh, it makes me wonder if they're gonna start using like stuff like this for like the new movies or other TV shows because it's such a weird, cool evolution of R two. Like you can have an R two unit without being restricted to having him only places where he can roll around and. Use a jetpack when it's convenient for the plot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I wasn't going to bring this up because I know we don't want to talk Rides of Skywalker here, but when I was on the Slash Filmcast last week talking about it, uh, one of Jeff Kanata's gripes about Rise of Skywalker was that they made an astromech droid talk. And uh, Brian, you can argue, argue your way out of a trash compactor here. Uh, what do you have to say with an astromech droid that talks? Dio's not an astromech droid. There, see. Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna. I, I was would have said the same thing. I don't know why he's complaining about that. That's a totally different kind of droid. Okay. Well, I, and, I didn't realize I mean, that when I was on the podcast, but I, I wish I had had that information at the time. If three PO can speak twenty three fazillion languages, why can't they program Dio to say ten words? But but C three PO is a protocol droid. That's what he said. I'm just repeating what he hard said. Hard drive is hard drive space like really something we're worried about in droids here. Uh, I guess not. Okay. Uh, they realize, uh, there's an army of troopers waiting for them at the end of the tunnel. They can't stop the boat. It's gonna, it's still moving. They, like, destroy the, the R2 or R whatever it is. Um, and IG-11 offers to sacrifice himself by self-destructing before getting captured. And Mando doesn't want this to happen. We can, we can hear the sad and sadness in Pedro's voice here and even IG- uh, recognizes that and mentions it, and uh, they eventually do let him do it. And IG walks out into the lava and self-destructs, killing the troopers. Uh, Brad, this is a callback of sorts, right? 
Yeah, this was set up uh, in the very first episode when we found out that IG-88 had a protocol to destroy himself when he felt like he was going to lose a battle. Uh, this is a, a similar kind of thing where he sees that the only way that they can he can fulfill his uh, duty to keep the child safe is for him to sacrifice himself and self-destruct the same way he would have in the first episode. And I gotta say, this is the this is one of the moments in this episode that I didn't feel it was quite earned. And I think part of it is because we didn't get to spend enough time with IG-11 in this way. And I think that that's, that's what they tried to accomplish with the previous episode by having that montage of showing Quill, uh, you know, training it again and reprogramming it and teaching it to walk and all this stuff so that you kind of grow attached to it in a new way and having it save Baby Yoda. But I just don't feel like, I don't know, obviously Mando is grateful that IG-11 was able to... Um, save uh you know the the asset but i just i don't know i didn't buy this as an emotional beat that felt like it and i, I didn't feel like it resonated as much as it should have i mean I, I i agree with you there um but i at the same time and and i wish they were they did give you time to establish that relationship instead we got some episodic adventures that you know i feel like the middle of the season was a little lackluster at least a couple of the episodes there um See- I think the stronger story beat is the fact that the Mando is emotional about it at all. Yeah. Like, as part of his arc, rather than whether or not we should feel for IG-11, I think well, it's that, more important for, for Mando. That's what I mean, though, is I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that there was enough there for him to, to feel that. with, with as, as much as he's hated droids for so long, this was, I, I don't know, and maybe, maybe that's just a, uh, a way of showing how much Mando cares about the kid, Um but I don't know. It's I, I I don't I don't hate it, but I just feel like it wasn't entirely earned. Yeah, and also we should mention that this is an homage to Terminator Two, which Taika Waititi has joked about before in his uh, film Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, yeah, great Terminator jokes in that movie. Yeah, so uh, uh, I was really surprised here because I really thought the second season was going to be Mando and his small gang going on this adventure, and it was going to include IG Eleven. Uh, Brian, were you shocked that we we had the sacrifice in this season? Um, no, because I don't think that there was. I think that there was probably a version of the last scene of this show, or the last couple of scenes of this show, that made it so that it could be closed, like a closed loop, because they weren't greenlit until very, very close to um, the end of post production, right? Like, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure. I think that it was designed to be a standalone story and they may well have gone into reshoots to open it back up again once they'd been greenlit. Fair enough. Um, okay. So, uh, Moff Gideon's TIE fighter appears above them after they, they escape. Uh, they, they start shooting at him. He's shooting at them back. Karga suggests that they deal with the TIE fighter with baby Yoda's hand wavery or wavy thing, whatever he, he says in the thing. And magic hands. Magic hands. And uh, it's just an awesome moment where the, you know, the infant baby Yoda is waving back to him. I just, I just love that. Uh, I'm out of ideas. <laughs> yes. Um, Mando puts his jetpack on and rockets up to the top as the tie approaches. He grapples onto the top, uh, tries to take it down. By the way, this, rem- this feels so like, like it's a Dave Filoni idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh Gideon like takes these evasive maneuvers and but Mando is able to attach a bomb to the tie which explodes and he rockets down to safety. Uh Kara and Karga then say 
weirdly that they are staying in Navarro, which feels like that's a conversation you should have, like, you know, the next day or something. (laughs) It's like, well, I mean, like they would have it the next day, but he's like, I'm taking off to my ship right now. Are you coming? And they're like, uh, maybe not. Maybe let's stay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Something about this bothers me because one of the things I did not like about Star Wars Rebels, and I understand this is a budgetary thing, is they built the city of Lothal and they had to keep on returning to it because they didn't have the budget to build other or big parts of other worlds. And I feel like that's what they're doing with Navarra. They've built these sets and they're like, they got to have a reason to return to this to the city, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's part of it. And, and I, I think with the ending with uh, Moff Gideon, though, it's going to set up them staying is actually going to set up a B story in the second season where he's off the gal off gallivanting across the galaxy and they're on Navarro dealing with with Moff Gideon. Oh, I just thought Moff Gideon was going to go after him. But OK, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, uh Grief says, or he says, take care, a little one. And Grief says, or maybe it will take care of you. And then I rolled my eyes. But okay, anyways, uh, close up on Baby Yoda's face as uh, he rockets up into the sky. Uh, we get um, a grave for Quill. So I guess this establishes the fact that he is really dead. Another thing I was not sure about when we saw that last scene of of last week's episode. So they're killing off a lot of the characters they you know spent establishing in this season, which is kind of surprising. Um, the razor crest takes off and baby Yoda is sucking on, uh, baby, uh, the Mando's, uh, mythosaur pendant. Uh, and we see, uh, Jawa scavenging the, the crashed tie fighter. And then we see a thing come through the door, breaking through the door, like, uh, cutting a door. And, at that moment, uh, when I'm watching that, like uh, Ketra was like, "No, is that a is is that the dark saber?" And I was uh, like, "No, no, no! It's just like some kind of tool that he's using to open up the Tie Fighter." And you know, when when he comes out, uh, he is wielding the the black saber, right? The um, wait, dark saber, black saber, dark saber, dark saber, yeah, uh, which is black. But anyways, um, so this is the setup for the next season. This is um a big cliffhanger that uh, the bad guy is still alive. And not only the bad guy is still alive, but he has one of the most powerful weapons in all of the galaxy here. So uh, Brad, what do you think about this? I mean, yeah, this is awesome because they're bringing an artifact that was a huge deal, uh, you know, in the animated series into live action. Um, It's just as cool as, I don't know if I can say this. Are we cool with Rise of Skywalker spoilers on this episode? Uh, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just say it's as cool as something that happens at the end of the Rise of Skywalker. Okay, that's fair enough. I think people uh, that have seen it will understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Um. And so, so yeah. And like, it's uh, it looks just as cool as it should in live action. And now I'm very intrigued as to why he has it in his possession and just who the hell this guy is to be uh, the person in possession of it. Okay, so when is the last time we saw the dark saber? Like, I remember um, in I did that Star Wars Shadows of the Empire Void experience, and like I think we saw that in Darth Vader's castle. There, am I correct? No, that no, that was a um, that was a different that that was a much earlier like a proto lightsaber from 
much further back in the Republic oh, okay. and not related to the Mandalorians at all. Um, this is something that is unique to the Mandalorians, and it featured in Clone Wars quite a bit where Pre Vizsla was wielding it. He fought Maul with it. Maul bested him and took it, and Maul had it in his possession for a long time, uh, and... Sabine Wren gets it back from him and she's able to help use it as a symbol to unite Mandalore around Bo-Katan who is um, voiced by Katie Sackhoff who should absolutely just come play the character in live action if she's alive still Um, but as she united Mandalore they united under the symbol of the Darksaber uh, honoring her um her right to the throne as it were it's sort of like i mean it's like the mandalorian equivalent of a crown you know what i mean but it's like it's only that one thing the fact that he has it the last time we saw it was yeah just before the battle of yavin so right right before the events of the original star wars right so yeah so which makes me feel like the purge and the night of a thousand tears happens sometime between then and and now and Gideon had to do something horrible in order to get that dark saber back. And Filoni has this really great habit of every time he works on a new project, tying up threads from his previous projects that just kind of like let, got left dangling. And uh, this is definitely one of the bigger ones. Well, I I am very intrigued here, and I'm very interested to see if we're going to get some. Do you think we'll, like, get some flashbacks to how he got it? Or, like, do you think – well, I guess that can't be covered in the Clone Wars because you're, you're saying this happened during the events of probably the original Star Wars trilogy. Um, yeah, I mean, we could get – I mean, we could get flashbacks of it with Giancarlo Esposito playing himself. It's not that far behind. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think season two of this show is going to be? Because we should mention that it was announced today that season two is coming in fall of 2020. Uh, we don't know much. We know, you know, obviously some returning characters that we can uh, assume. We know that uh, Carl Weathers is directing the episode. We know John Favreau is directing the episode. We can assume that Taika is coming uh, back for one of them. Filoni said he was coming back to. Well, they yeah. made mention at the press conference. I would hope Taika is. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm saddened that Deborah Chow is probably going to be busy with her Obi Wan series because I'd like to see her come back. Um, who knows about Frick uh, Rick? Um, what uh, what do you think is going to happen for season two? Is this going to be like the search for Baby Yoda's home? I mean, y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, mean, I think that's part of it. But I think also part of it is going to be Moff Gideon and Cara Dune and Grief Karga, sort of like. I think Navarro is going to be a battleground, not just for the reasons you stated before, where they have the sets, they need to continue using them, even though a lot of those sets are digital, too, with the the screen technology that they're using with the on the Unreal Engine. But uh, I think that planet is going to be really important in the scheme of, of Moff Gideon, and maybe he'll use them as bait to bring the Mando back hmm. somehow. Brad, do you have any theories for season two? I really don't. You know, it's it's really just the basic thing that we see happening. I, I hope and assume we will learn more about the history of um, Din Djarin and maybe where Moff Gideon got that Darksaber from. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me because, you know, he's if he's going in search of Baby Yoda's home, 
we have not seen many of that species in the Star Wars universe and all the the content has been produced. We've seen what, two? Yep, Maybe three? Two. Yeah, y- two. No, just Yoda and Yaddle. Uh which makes me believe that there is no home out there. Or maybe there's one more, you know, Yoda species in the galaxy. Like, I don't know. That seems like a, like, you know, a needle in a haystack of a mission. <laughs> I don't know. It, it just seems like it's it's, it's destined to, fa- to fail. But I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I want to see. I, I doubt this is going to happen. But I want to see. They keep on calling him a foundling. I want to see Mando actually train him as a Mando. And I want to see, like, baby Yoda in a small Mandalorian costume. I was actually hoping that during that that scene that the armorer was making, like, a tiny helmet for him. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been Just with his ears poking out. Somebody yeah. do some of that. Yeah. That's got to be fan art soon somewhere. For sure. Um, okay, we got one email in here from Jason from Kuwait. He writes in with crazy fan theories. And as you know, I like to entertain crazy fan theories. He says, so there's a theory floating around that it's possible that Baby Yoda is somehow integral to the reincarnation of Palpatine. And, and that might maybe the client and Grand Moff Gideon are part of a shadow group that is building the secret forces of the new empire on Exegol. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea and definitely would bo- both add stakes to what's happening t- on the Mandalorian by tying it into the, the you know, the main Skywalker saga. Uh, what do you think about this, Brian? I mean, there's inevitably going to be people trying to tie this stuff into the sequel trilogy because this is our only runway between the two movies. Um, but I, I, I don't want to say it's... A, I would have said, like... I doubted it, but this starts to get into the time period where, um, you know, they're stealing Lando's kid and they're stealing or they're looking after they're they're thinking about trying to find Ray. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're out in the galaxy making moves that it seems like Leia is the only person who who realizes or moves from the first order. And uh so I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they want him so badly um, because of some piece of the cloning technology that they need, right? Like there's that the, – the patches on the, the scientist, Dr. Pershing, ha- had some tangential relation to uh, the patches on the clones. Dominic Monaghan's character, Beaumont, in Rise of Skywalker, mentions this dark science and cloning and secrets only the Sith knew, which could have very easily been a line for Rose Tico. Um, <laughs> would um would would Ray already be born by this point or no? No, I think she's still she's still a few years away at le- for for being born at least. Okay. What were you thinking, Brad? Well, I'm I'm wondering <laughs> since. Uh, again, I, I can't get into Rise of Skywalker spoilers, though. Uh, okay, you know what? We're going to say right now, if you have not seen Rise of Skywalker, because this is like the, the last, you know, five minutes of this podcast, you know, tune out now, uh, because Brad has some kind of insane theory. So, Brad, go ahead. Well, as we saw around the time Rise of Skywalker came out, uh, both Baby Yoda and uh, Rey exhibited the ability to heal people's wounds with the Force. So if, you know, if there's maybe some kind of tie between, yeah, I I don't want to say the DNA necessarily, but it could just be just a general force ability if you're that in tune with it, that if Baby Yoda does get used 
somehow in the process of, you know, Palpatine's return that maybe that's what, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm just connecting dots in a very vague way here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the question is like, you know, baby Yoda probably has to die before the events of the sequel trilogy. So, so the sad thing. And I know Brian on Twitter, you started spouting an insane, crazy theory of your own. I, I I had one stupid tweet that I thought was hilarious, and it was like, what if Baby Yoda ends up in Luke's Jedi Academy uh, during all of his difficulties <laughs> with Ben? And, and like, I did not expect that tweet to blow up. I was making what I thought was a joke, but it went it went through the roof and I can't I can't control it anymore. Um but I, I don't think he has to die. And I think the more we say, well, so-and-so has to die before the events of X, the more Filoni works out ways that they don't have to. Right? This is what happened with Ahsoka. For years, we were like, is Ahsoka going to die? And he played with us over and over and over again until she left the Jedi Order. Yeah. And by the and way, not was... just Ahsoka. Like, we were like, everybody in the show has to die before the events yeah. of and, and then almost none of them did, so... Except, except by the end of Rise of Skywalker, we do know that she did die at some point. Well, maybe. Did you see that tweet from Filoni? No. So Filoni, uh, over the weekend, he he wrote a uh, he he did a piece of, a really great piece of art, and it's Ahsoka and Gandalf together. And the tweet read, "Was thinking of all of you this fine morning. Happy holidays." And it's uh, some some grayscale, like Copic marker, like kind of watercolor looking art of Ahsoka and Gandalf sta- standing next to each other. And Gandalf saying, people thought I was dead, too. Look how that turned out. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to get too much into the Rise of Skywalker, but I don't think those voices necessarily mean that all those people are dead. Well, I mean, I mean all, she's all the of only the, one all that has a question mark. Yeah. yeah, all of them are, except for her. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the question is why didn't they use Ezra there? So, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to find out. I don't well, know. I, I'm, I'm sure we're gonna find out in some way because Dave Filoni is gonna pay this off in some way, right? I I think Ezra and Thrawn are too big of a dangling thread, and and Ahsoka and Sabine looking for them is too much of a dangling thread for him not to try to pay it off. But that's also interesting too, though. Sabine, if the purge happened prior to the Battle of Endor, right? Yeah. Sabine makes it through there because she leaves with Ahsoka to go find Ezra in the Unknown Regions. So she could conceivably come back at some point and find the purge has happened. Do you think that we'll ever see someone like Sabine show up in The Mandalorian or a live-action uh, Star Wars series film or whatever? I, I mean, like, if you would have asked me two weeks ago, I'd have said, like, I don't think the movies are going to pay that much attention to the cartoons. But after Rise of Skywalker and hearing Ahsoka and Kanan Jarrus's voices, yeah, I feel like it's a bigger possibility. And after seeing the Darksaber show up, like... I don't think that that's out of the realm. But I wonder the I wonder the do you, I, I think my hesita- my my one qualm I guess with this is how many of the more casual Star Wars fans pay attention enough to the animated series to even care about seeing those kinds of things show up. Like are they 
are they marketable enough if they were to do that? But I, I would say this, like, I feel like a lot of people watch Star Wars Rebels, a lot more people watch Star Wars Rebels than watch the Clone Wars. And I know I didn't watch a lot of the Clone Wars um, when I started on Rebels. And I mean, I did know who Ahsoka was, but I feel like when she comes into that, like it, it's a character that you could fill in her backstory by watching, you know, Clone Wars. It doesn't feel like it's something that's, you know, that you need prior knowledge of. You just got to know that she's like a powerful Jedi of some kind. And I mean, to be honest, it seems like, they're really, at least with the live action TV shows, they're pushing the interconnectivity of all of it and the fact that you can go from Mandalorian and go watch Clone Wars and Rebels. It seems like if they're going to make the jump to live action, it's going to hit on Disney Plus first. I've yeah. got this crazy theory, and you can tell me how crazy it is, but that Kenobi, in order for them to not stay limited to just Tatooine for six hours... I think a lot of it's going to be one of the conceits in all of the Kenobi storytelling is him writing in his journal about his adventures. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of these episodes were that and we could see some of the events referenced in Clone Wars. Whether And, and also tie that with Mandalorians, right? Yeah. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in the days before uh, Phantom Menace helped the Duchess Satine take control of the planet. And they were on the run with her for a year uh running away from like death watch and the terrorists and everything. And if we got an episode of that with young Obi-Wan, they bring Liam Neeson back. Clearly they're really good at keeping secrets. Um, they will tie those things together from the animated series more and they'll do it more in a more forthright way with the other Disney plus series. Maybe not the movies as much. Okay, we've gone way outside the limits of The Mandalorian here. Uh, I'm excited to get back into this in 2020. But until then, Brian, where can people find more of your work online? Um, it, you can find me uh, on Twitter at SwankMotron. And I kind of put a uh, a clearinghouse of all the stuff I'm writing there. My stuff's appearing regularly in Star Wars Insider, at Sci-Fi Channel's website, and at Slash Film, uh, which I'm very, very proud of my work there. Especially my my review of this episode in particular you should check it out if you want to get into the mythology of the river uh, phlegathon and dante's inferno as, as how it relates to the lava river in this episode i'll put a link to that in the show notes brad where can we find your work of course slash film.com always on twitter at ethan underscore anderson and uh, I have a podcast called Go Flix Yourself. It's available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. You can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can find me at Peter Serretta on Twitter. You can watch my YouTube adventures on Ordinary Adventures. That's YouTube.com slash Ordinary Adventures. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published almost every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at slashfilm.com and please rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you on the next one